Why would you take on investors when you already had a profitable business and no debt? Is the advice you get from investors as important as the money? Are remote software teams as popular post-pandemic as they were during COVID? And are robots going to overtake software developers? These are some of the questions we ask Teja Yenamandra, CEO and co-founder of Gun.io, a platform for matching tech talent with the best organizations. Gun.io wants to bring joy to both talent and the organizations who hire talent, and uses a matching algorithm to do that. Tasia founded Gun.io 10 years ago and recently took a round of investment to grow the business. You can hear Tasia and Tom discuss Web 3.0, nuclear strikes, and how to run an investment process on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. Tasia, it is wonderful to see you. Thanks for coming today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, no, me too. So um, you bootstrapped a business and made it profitable, and then you took on money. What made you make that decision? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, the decision to bootstrap actually seemed like <laughs> it seemed like the only option. You know, it's like when you start a mm-hmm. business, you mm-hmm. generally want it to make money. And so we just did that for a long time. And, you know, I think we bootstrapped the company for maybe eight or nine years and the growth was solid and, you know, we were profitable. Uh, but I think we got to a point where we started seeing opportunities to accelerate the growth of the company, you know, by let's say being more offensive with our sales process, because, you know, most of the business we, um, generated came from referrals or from people coming in and knocking on our you know digital doorstep uh but you know scaling a sales team investing more on the platform these seem like interesting opportunities to make the business better and so you know Mm -hmm. we started thinking about okay what does um external investment look like and then we you know we met this fund ballast point ventures and and honestly i would say 50 percent of it was like there was a business case for it. And then 50% probably was like the relationship that I had with Robert, who's the partner on the deal and on our board now, was just awesome. Like you could just tell he was a solid dude. And I personally felt like I could mature, you know, um, as a Mm -hmm. leader and working with people that are, I don't know, just like, uh, the solid, you know? And so, Mm -hmm the decision came down to like a people thing and then also like a business opportunity thing. And, um, yeah, I would say that that was sort of the logic behind the decision. Was that mentorship, the opportunity to, um, to have, have a mentor or at least to have somebody to talk to about being a CEO, was that as important as the money or less important or sort of where did it, was it exactly 50, 50, like you said? Yeah. I mean, my theory on this is not fully fleshed out, mm-hmm. but it's something like the space of available possibilities is a function mm-hmm. of your relationships, right? And, and however, who you can build relationships with is also a function mm-hmm. of like your track record of financial performance in some way. So it's like there's a bi-directional mm-hmm. feedback loop, right? And so... Mm-hmm. For, I think the two things are linked, you know, and and in some ways equally weighted. Um, mm-hmm. We just, at least, I felt like if you can work with somebody who's um, really well reasoned, mm-hmm. uh, that's a that's awesome. Like that's really key, uh, at least in my world. And so, uh, yeah, I think the opportunity for mentorship, the opportunity to have like really disciplined thinking. Um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of work on the corporate and the company strategy just is, is tough. And like we said, no, a bunch of times, by the sure. way, we were like, Hey, we're not ready. This yeah. is like too much. Like we mm-hmm. want to continue to scale. But then finally it was like, okay, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. We think, you know, like our business is basically hiring, helping companies hire engineers remotely. And like the pandemic basically, I don't know, like 
made everybody in the world except remote. You know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. we were mm -hmm. like, okay, it's time to go after this opportunity. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing any um, pullback uh, post-pandemic or do you think the acceptance of remote is as strong as ever? I was, so I was asked this question, like in a, mm -hmm. in a sort of round table discussion we did with some developers on the platform and, and what, mm -hmm. what we see um, is there's not been a pullback from companies that we serve uh, which are typically, you know, it's like we've served big companies, little companies, but typically it's like mid-stage growth companies, you know, maybe a couple hundred people. Mm -hmm. And these companies are generally hiring um, mm -hmm. as aggressively as they were through the pandemic. Um, you know, so we haven't seen it. You know, we have seen a pullback on like Web3 related projects. I think um, mm -hmm. as like the easy money has dried up because mm -hmm. rates have gone up like just the dynamics mm -hmm. of like deploying capital have changed and i think investors in general are looking for more fundamentally sound businesses which mm -hmm. you know it's like no matter where you stand on the web3 sort of opportunity it's like it seems like a lot of businesses in that space were a little bit far off from having like really effective business models which Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're not valid businesses. It just probably doesn't suit the, the investment psychology today, you know? Mm -hmm. So just for anybody in the audience who doesn't know Web3, I'll define it the way I define it. I want to hear how you define yeah. it, though. But I think of it as um, crypto, among other things. So it's anything related to um, blockchain or crypto or that kind of stuff. How do you define it? I think that's a great definition. Yeah, it's like anything to mm -hmm. do with like, um, I don't know, the, it, it's like, I don't know, it's like something around taking a decentralized blockchain first yeah. approach to solving mm -hmm. business problems, Right. you know? <laughs> I, so, I, I mean, just to um, get philosophical for a moment, just because I love doing that. Um, yeah, you same. could make, I mean, the, yeah, the internet was dis was designed to withstand a nuclear strike. The idea was that there wouldn't be any central hub that you could hit that would knock all communications out. Um, and I, I think we've in the, you know, this is pure speculation on my part, but it seems like the internet in its current form no longer meets that description. Um, <laughs> that, like, if, like if I, if I hit Google and I hit AWS, that'd probably be pretty much it. You know, <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> what, what are you going to do? Everybody's going to, everybody's going to have to go use Bing or reroute their traffic or, so it, I think you could make a case that it's like, well, it needs to be rebuilt to be decentralized again, because the power of the internet's been consolidated into so many few players. So yeah. for me, Web 3.0 is, is like an anti-monopoly, anti-centralization story. Yeah, I like that. But I, I'm a firm believer in centrally managed currency. Uh, it's an enormous benefit to the United States that the dollar is the, the um, default currency of the world. That's an irreplaceable strategic advantage that we have. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm against anything that attacks that notion. Right? <laughs> I, yeah. And I think, I mean, any, I don't know, cryptocurrency that would have mm -hmm. broad enough adoption to replace the dollar would suffer the same, uh, issues that the web three people have with the dollar anyway, probably. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. too much centralized into one place. Yeah, like mm -hmm. I don't know. Every single, I guess, other than Bitcoin, um, it seemed. And I don't, I don't understand Web three. I'll just be very clear. Like I have a very surface mm -hmm. level understanding of the dynamics of mm -hmm. that whole sector of I don't know technology, mm -hmm. and also economics. <laughs> I will say that, mm -hmm. but it, but it seems like every. <laughs> Every uh, cryptocurrency, aside from Bitcoin, was ultimately centrally managed anyway. Like it was built by some company mm -hmm. that had some mm -hmm. management, right? That's the same mm -hmm. as the Fed. In fact, one would argue the Fed is actually more decentralized than having mm -hmm. like the CEO of a company manage an entire currency. So, Yes, I, I, that's an interesting argument. I like that. So let me <laughs> go back to... I like that. Let me go back and talk a little bit about your investors and that journey. So 
Did they have yeah. opinions when they came in about how to deploy the money or was how did that process work? So you you agree to bring them on, you like their character, you like the way that they work. Do they have lots of ideas about your business? Well, I mean, the way that we kind of ran our process was we we mm -hmm. figured out what we wanted to do, how we wanted to grow, like the levers we wanted mm -hmm. to pull because we had been running the business for a while. So we felt like we had good mm -hmm. insight into like if we, mm -hmm. you know, if we strengthen the balance sheet, how do how would we de deploy the extra capital? And so we basically looked and like shopped our plan around and mm -hmm. tried to find alignment with a fund that was like, yeah, this seems like a good plan. And like we support it. Obviously, it'll change. But this is a good reference mm -hmm. point to come back to, you know. Um, and so that that's how we ran the process. So, yeah, mm -hmm. they had opinions, but they're those opinions are pretty much aligned with our opinion. So, you know, that's, mm -hmm. it's totally good. Mm -hmm. You know? So if you raise money again, would you do follow the same pattern, that same process of we're going to, we're going to make a plan and then shop a plan. hundred, hundred percent. Yeah. We would definitely do mm -hmm. that. I mean, and, and I think, mm -hmm. um, as a company gets bigger, um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it, it's sort of like, uh, the, the plan becomes, like uh more leveraged and farther out and and therefore i think in some ways like one could argue even more uncertain although people traditionally think that like the highest uncertainty is in the earliest stages i don't know it seems like getting mm -hmm. from a couple million in revenue to like 30 million in revenue is like pretty clear like layer in some different growth strategies build the product define your customer and get after it you know uh mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's the path in front of us, you know. Um, but anyways, yeah, I think I would, I think we would do the same thing. Um, one thing we would do differently, and this is mm -hmm. something that um, it's like impossible to know, is like uh, mm -hmm. the way that we did the negotiation, actually, I could have, I could have optimized. We ended up in the right place uh, mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, how, how do I say this? Like, we found the point like we optimized the terms to the extent possible, mm -hmm. but it took us too long. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mm -hmm. think it probably took five unnecessary months. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that I would do it is like, instead of just like negotiating line by line, I would, I would advise and um, anybody else maybe going through this process to just like, force rank all the things that you don't like in order of importance to you because one mm -hmm. thing i didn't anticipate is like these funds have models generally for how they want the deals to um to be structured and if you move one variable that affects their economics on the the deal holistically and so you know for us it was very important to like maximize control flexibility and decision making, flexibility and outcomes, you know, and um, that's what we cared about. We didn't care so much about like, I don't know, maximizing like economic terms truly, because the early stage valuation mm -hmm. is like, it's so subjective. Um, and so mm -hmm. that I would have gotten to where we got to like way faster by just being like, hey, here's what we don't like, here's what we do, here's what we really need changed. Like, what can you do? And just done it in like a month. That's probably mm -hmm. what I would have done differently. It's interesting. Well, I mean, I guess in retrospect, you can think, um, would I which would I rather have, the current agreement or those five months back? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I I'm making a big assumption in that we could have gotten mm -hmm. to the same terms in a month, you know. But mm -hmm. if you had to mm -hmm. force me to choose, I would definitely mm -hmm. have these terms in the five months mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than have the five months. I would say. Yeah, I mean, if, um, you're still, oh, God, you're under 30, aren't you? Or are you no, under I'm 40? 30. Yeah, I'm under 40. Yeah, yeah, I'm 34. Under 40, yeah. okay. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, yeah, you got a long way in the business, you know, and those terms stay with you forever. I was just had, having lunch with another founder, and uh, he was talking about his partners, and we were kind of joking about how, you know, um, that's a hard thing to change. You know, there's a lot of parts of your business you can change, but changing your partners is awfully difficult. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's why it's, it's really, I mean, I think it's the most important thing, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
to make sure that you are working with people that you can see yourself mm-hmm. working with for a decade or more, you know? Yeah. So to talk to me about gun. And so, as you mentioned earlier, you guys help place um, technical development talent in organizations. There are a lot of people who are doing that. So what is it that you guys do differently that would make someone want to invest with you? Yeah, totally. Um, as a customer and as a developer, I think what we do really well is um, we we make the experience joyful. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you work with Robert Half, I don't know if I can mention them by name, but let's say you work with oh, yeah. another recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> a recruiting and staffing mm-hmm. company, right? A typical mm-hmm. one. Um, mm-hmm. you're like a piece of meat if you're on the talent side and, you know, mm-hmm. also if you're on the company side, like, and you're, let's say engaging somebody like for a staffing contract, you have no idea what the end person is getting paid. You have no idea if the company's taking 80% margin. You know what I mean? You don't know how engaged mm-hmm. the talent is. You just don't have a good understanding of the economics and like the market maker, the staffing firm in this case, benefits from the opacity because it improves their ability to negotiate more margin from you, extract more margin. Mm-hmm. Like our, we run our business totally differently. You know, I mean, like we're totally transparent about take rates. The developers set their own rates. We try to get them to an income target. Um, we tell the companies what our take rate is. We tell the devs what our take rate is. And then like we try to also help after the dev is hired on a fractional basis or on a you know full-time basis by you know helping the developers improve their mentorship like we have a bunch of senior engineers on the platform that like help advise developers uh through the hiring process and once they're placed um and so like all this ends up in like actually the average project on the platform at the tenure is like 16 months which is like I think four months longer than the average Silicon Valley job tenure. So we're doing something right. Wow. You know? Uh, yeah. It might be 14 months, which is two months longer. So, but it's longer that I do know. It's uh, longer. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah it's cool. Zoom just let, let a president go today after nine months. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I mean, yeah. So it's longer than that. And so, <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I think I think it's like you know we we make the experience awesome, and um, mm-hmm. that means something. Uh, ultimately, I think it means like better connections, better ability to collaborate, and just like mm-hmm. um, better achievement loops. You know, people mm-hmm. make more money, companies get better stuff built. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I think companies and developers choose to work with us and the value that mm-hmm. we provide. If mm-hmm. if you're an investor. You know, I think, uh, like with marketplaces, like I think there was like a very 1.0 thinking around like marketplaces uh, in these types of like businesses have winner take all dynamics. And you look at examples Mm -hmm. like Uber uh, and then you think, okay, in every market, if there's a tech company that's replacing an existing set of fragmented kind of non-tech solutions that's going to own the entire thing but like labor is so interesting and complex and it can't be like piecemealed like driving can or like the delivery Mm -hmm. of food can and so Mm -hmm. i think like it's like there's never been one company that's dominated all of labor i mean that i know Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. it's like so i don't know i think we're a pretty well-run business and um I think there's like a clear difference between what we do and what other companies do. So it's probably an attractive investment mm-hmm. opportunity. That's at least what balance yeah. point tells me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so do, are you, uh, or anybody, as you mentioned, you know, it's a labor business and there's yeah. a lot of hoo-ha about, you know, automated, uh, chat GPT and crap like that. And there's been talk about automated coding for a long time. Um, could you see some point where your business has some combination of automation of the development process with uh, people? Yeah. I mean, I think um, like you can get it to run tests on your code. Mm-hmm. You can even get it to like uh, chat GPT. You can even get chat GPT to write um, mm-hmm. coding solutions to problems. Um, you can get it to, automate some parts of the communication like 
work stream with clients, which is a part of, you know, freelancing mm-hmm. as a software engineer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. th- there's opportunity there and we're looking at it. There's, you know, um, but it's, but it's still really early, you know? Yeah. So, um, it's hard to say exactly in what application we'd use it. I mean, we've even thought about using it to like automate some of the work streams associated with like making sure like invoices are paid on time. There was some big Twitter mm-hmm. thread about that. So mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a lot of cool opportunity. I'm, I'm not sophisticated enough on the subject matter to speak specifically. Um, but, yeah. but, but there, there do seem to be applications in the development of, of software for sure. Yeah. Um, I was, I was, um, my point of view on jet GBT is that it, it cannot reach past its education. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, um, people who are poorly educated can still be highly innovative and brilliant people, um, because of their, their ability. Anyway, for lots of reasons, they're people, um, <laughs> chat GPT is not a person. And so, you know, it does what you tell it to do and it, it, it executes the orders that it's given. Um, and so, you know, somebody who, um, you know, I love to read and when I read the stuff that it writes, I'm like, okay, well, banality has been automated. You know? Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, and it can do banality in somebody else's voice, you know, in somebody else's style, but there aren't things in there where I'm like, God, that's, that's really insightful. The inside part hasn't really been automated. You know, it's, you have to get the insight library and put it in there. And even then it would be <laughs> a rehashing. No, totally. And I, and I haven't like wrapped my mind around this, but I think you're right. Like when you look mm-hmm. at the things that it writes or a, a questions that, it, that chat GPT answers, it, it mm-hmm. feels very, uh, like a surface level, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not novel. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that mm-hmm. you couldn't have just derived by looking at the first three pages on a Google search. You know what I mean? And yep. I'm like copy yep. and pasting at random these paragraphs. So, um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> which is basically what it's doing. That's what it does. That's, what it's it's, doing. that's pretty much exactly yeah. what it does. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's just like a new interface mm-hmm. for search is what I think about mm-hmm. it. Like, and so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's early, right? It's like, uh, like yeah, the internet it's itself early. was a, was a toy mm-hmm. now it's mm-hmm. the big thing and so it's possible this will mm-hmm. be i mean it's likely it'll mm-hmm. be really big you know yeah um i think uh you know somebody in the labor business there's there's an endless demand for the automation of labor I mean, yes. there's, there's like a constant constant fight between labor and management um you know over like how are we going to divide this pie and um so this this is one more one more entry into that arena of um, how do we create jobs and how do we eliminate jobs? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, like I'm not smart enough to have like game this out to like its logical mm-hmm. conclusion, but let's mm-hmm. say every job ever was automated. Every single job. Mm-hmm. This is like, there's no jobs mm-hmm. left, but right? mm-hmm. like all we're doing is consuming mm-hmm. because there's nothing to do. And like, you just like hang out and do whatever. Uh, but the doing is like basically all hedonistic cause there's nothing to actually do. Uh, mm-hmm. what does that world look like? And like, what does it even mean? I don't know. Well, it looks like, it like, looks like ancient Rome. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, there's, 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 you had a slave economy and so they didn't count as citizens. They were property. Um, and they could produce wealth on the land that you owned. Um, and so it, in many ways, we've seen that economy already. Um, and uh, now with the, this, the disparity of wealth then was between people and other people. And in the future, would it be between people and machines? Um, where, uh, but then there's, you know, the argument can be made that the machines would run that society because the people would be helpless. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, like, I guess then, like, the fights would be over control of the productive assets. Like, like mm-hmm. that's what it would be. Like, there'd be, mm-hmm. there'd be, like, no way for you to actually, like, build wealth by, like, exploiting an opportunity because everything would be automated. You just basically have mm-hmm. to, like, wage a war over 
acquiring somebody else's productive asset, like their land. That would be the mm-hmm. means to like grow your wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just extracting yeah. an annuity from your productive machine, I guess. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think um, I love this kind of thing. I think a, <laughs> um, yeah, that ideas are an inexhaustible resource, and they also, you know, an, an idea can also develop tremendous value. So, you know, if our physical necessities were taken care of by machines, will we all become TikTok creators? You know, we all go into uh, some form of intellectual work and Mm. um, maybe, but I mean, there's a lot to be said for tending a garden um, and not necessarily having a machine do that for you. I don't know anything about gardening. It's probably a lot more intellectual than I'm giving it credit for or inferring. But um, anyway, I'm not not a, not a fan of dirt, so I know nothing about that. Um, no, it, but it would be we, we, but it would be interesting if you had like a machine that made better TikToks than like the best TikTok maker. <laughs> like, what what would that person do? Like, what if we automated away the TikTok making? Like, I don't know. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, as, as somebody who who like writes, uh, I'm hoping that there's no way to do that, but I'm I'm sure I'm wrong. <laughs> there's an engineer out there who's like. <laughs> You're wrong. I've already done it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's um, in some ways. I mean, TikTok create anybody who creates art or that's uh, you know, I don't know if TikTok is art, but anybody who creates content consumed by other people wants to know what the magic formula is. You know, so they're like Nashville's a songwriting town, and there are people who will say, "Well, you know, so and so could write a hit hit country song anytime they wanted to. They just don't want to." And I always think that's total <laughs> bullshit. If anybody yeah, knew how to write a hit song every time, they would write nothing but hit songs. Why else? Would you, why would you do anything else? And, 100%. Um, but I think there are people who who uh, at least try to you know position themselves as being well. My odds of having a hit are much higher than anybody else's, which may be true, but they're still not guaranteed. I don't think the other thing is those formulas, as far as I know, um, aren't stationary. You know, so mm-hmm. like what was a hit? The Beatles, if you know, if yesterday was released today, would that be a big hit, or would it be like this is slow and boring? You know, um, so yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, cool. I have to think about that more, but that's a really interesting <laughs> subject to think about. I don't have any well, thoughts me, yet, but but I see the that's right. I see, that's the, right. I see the the thought process there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll ask something else. Um, so you've been a you've been a CEO now for like ten years, right? Been a long time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, what do you find to be the most enjoyable part of that job? Um, so I would say I really like working with people and solving problems. I know that's like super vague, but like mm-hmm. I, I love like being social and just like talking to people. Mm-hmm. This is per- me personally. Mm-hmm. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's a big part of my job, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I kind of have to do that. Uh, certainly there's an expectation that I do that. And, and thankfully I like doing that. So that's awesome. Um, and then I really, I find like a lot of joy out of like solving problems. Like, you know, if there's um, like, you know, I trained Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and so that's like problem solving in like another context and like a more physical kind of martial arts context. And to me, like um, business is just like another canvas to solve problems. And um, to me, it's like magical to like work with smart people and then work with them to like solve problems that are important and then ultimately like make money because that's also fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. I so I love I love that about um, being a CEO. And, um, I, you know, I don't, I actually don't know if those two qualities are like unique to being a CEO. I actually don't think they're unique to being, they're like probably consistent across every fun job. Uh, I think maybe what's unique to being a CEO that like I have actually benefited from mm-hmm. is that like people assume that I'm smart because I'm a CEO. This is like, it's like because of my job title, like they right. assume I know some shit that I, that I probably right. don't, or like that my thoughts are more valid. 
So like right. I'm challenged less generally. And like, I don't mm-hmm. have to like, uh, I don't know, like if I'm in a room, let's say with a bunch of smart people, like I, I don't feel a need to like prove myself. And a lot of it is just because I happen to have this silly job title. Um, and so that's like one fringe benefit that I think is unique, you know, but I think a lot of like, you know, high prestige jobs have that benefit, but that is definitely unique to my role. That probably doesn't exist in other roles, you know? So what do you want to get better at the most? Hmm. I want to get better at uh, recognizing the undulating patterns of my emotional state and their effects on my decision making. And uh, yeah, I want to get better at that too. <laughs> <laughs> As I've gotten older, one mm-hmm. thing I've noticed about myself, and this is this is mm-hmm. not again unique to being CEO, but like so much of the job Mm -hmm. is like making decisions, right? Uh, Like Mm -hmm. you're in a call and like one errant comment or like shift in your body language when somebody's talking or like some impulsive thing to check your phone just because you're addicted to your phone. And like somebody is speaking, they, that might send them into a spiral of like, Oh, like, is he not interested in what I'm saying? Blah, blah, blah. What's he thinking? Where, like, all that shit matters, and this is something that I just never paid any attention to. But, like, as the company is scaling, I notice that, like, my emotional state affects my decision-making and affects my presentation. And, like, um, I, I, that's something that I want to get better at. It's something that I need to get mm-hmm. better at, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think athletes and performers talk about that as well, that um, how do you maintain – your professionalism, no matter what's going on in your personal life, no matter how you're feeling, how do you be present and professional at all times? And, um, you know, there's, you could say, well, automate it, you know, that's just an automaton. But I actually <laughs> think that, that um, uh, the ability to, to channel that energy into, or, uh, into the job at hand and to be yes. totally present for the work that, that has to be done in that moment. And I agree with you that um, small emotional cues can have an impact on someone's decision. I mean, our, our, it's a myth to think that decision-making is rational, in my opinion. I just don't think we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're semi-rational actors at best. I and, agree with that. Um, I, yeah, I agree with that. So I, and I think that's you know, not necessarily recognized in the sales cycle that often. is like, well, you, know, uh, you can have a, a pretty strong – economic case but until you've established a personal relationship pretty often doesn't matter yeah the economists have sold us something that is not mm-hmm. always true mm-hmm. this assumption mm-hmm. that individuals are rational actors i don't think is necessarily yeah. true all the time no you know i don't think it's true at all i mean it's like um one of the things i like to do for fun is i like to look at the um the pe's of different companies and mm. think about why is this company trading in a multiple so much higher than this company? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So like, I actually have a couple, I did this just yesterday for something I wrote Amgen. Uh, so today is March 3rd, 2023. Amgen yesterday was trading at a PE of like 12, 12 and a half. And Pfizer was trading at, I think four and a half or seven, I think seven. So why is Amgen so much higher? You know, that's a, that's a significantly higher multiple. Yeah. Um, and each of them, you know, had so when you look at their, they're in, you know, obviously pretty much the same, similar businesses. They wouldn't describe themselves as being in the same business, I'm sure. Um, but what does that premium put on Amgen? And then what is the rational justification for that premium being put on Amgen? Um, the thing that really blows my mind as an investor is that none of this stuff has to be real. The only thing that's real is the stock price. Everything else is imaginary. And, um, you know, including the, the accounting, is, uh, it is accounting. You could count it differently if you wanted to. Um, 
And the rules, you know, you're supposed to follow the rules in the accounting, but as we see, those aren't always followed. Um, yeah, anyway, it, it does seem does seem like um, so much of this stuff is not is not rational. Like you said, I, I love what you said earlier in the in the conversation. The evaluation at that early stage is so speculative. Um, it is. And yeah. Does Does it ever actually clear up? Uh, I think so. So in in the case of so I, in the case of Amgen and mm-hmm. Pfizer, mm-hmm. Uh, it might be. I mean, if Amgen's growing faster, there's probably mm-hmm. a multiple premium placed on that. And I, and I have found that in fundraising, at least in the early stage, there's like three things that are important to valuations probably more but yeah obviously mm-hmm. good business people mm-hmm. think in threes it's an effective framework mm-hmm. and so, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. um the first is like that i don't know like that je ne sais quoi of like the mm-hmm. story the vision mm-hmm. yeah you know i mean like and mm-hmm. like how credible does this person seem blah 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 mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. the second is probably like just the fundamental like unit economics expressed mm-hmm. as basically math uh, but then also in some ways, like the level of automation in the business and like mm-hmm. the implications on marginal cost of selling at scale. And then the third is historical growth rate. And so, mm-hmm. um, for us, you know, like we made a decision to basically grow at 50% profitably, and we probably could have taken money earlier on to have accelerated that growth rate earlier run the company at a loss, maybe I like, I don't know how you would, it's like, you'd have to think about, okay, how much of the ownership are you selling to get this capital to grow faster? I, I don't know. You know, it, it always seems better to like take as little money as you need to like get to the mm-hmm. next step. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I tend to think that like valuations at the early stage are like really messy, but then as a company, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't go to business school, but I, but I tend to think that like as a company approaches maturity and as defined by like all of the known opportunities are like exploited maximally and mm-hmm. like you can potentially start shaving money on like your R&D because like you've, you know, found a mm-hmm. thing that works. Mm-hmm. Then you can start to derive like real value based on multiples of EBIT. Um, but mm-hmm. the thing about tech companies is like the valuations are all forward looking. It's all like someday mm-hmm. we'll make a billion dollars in profit. And in some cases mm-hmm. that's true. Like look at Microsoft. They do. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And it happens. You know, it mm-hmm. happens, you know? Um, so yeah. And so that's why I think you can get like a really small tech company worth like 10 million bucks. It's like, it's like mm-hmm. they're not generating a single dime of profit, but like they're, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> they're worth a lot. So, uh, well, it's, you know, yeah. that's people betting on a dream. Um, but it is, I think you're, it's very interesting what you're saying about how, um, and it sort of shows I'm a naive investor. Um, no, the, I don't think um, so. I, this yeah, well, is my view. Yeah. It was sort of like how much of your, um, how much of your total addressable market have you consumed? How much is left to fight over? Um, and uh, how much of your existing operations can be optimized? Those things all fit into that multiple. Um, and there, um, I do, I do really feel like a lot of this stuff though is based on belief, certain sort of theories of knowledge or theories of, of, um, yeah. of existence, you know, so it's just, it's, uh, I think investing does feel to me to be a very philosophical uh, pursuit, mathematical, but also highly philosophical because so much of it is uh, driven by assumptions. Totally. Like for historical growth rate to be relevant, you have to have an assumptive Mm -hmm. belief that past growth Mm -hmm. is a good indicator of future growth, which Mm -hmm. is like in every investment prospectus that that's not the case. So like, Mm -hmm. You know, um, that is an interesting one for sure. Um, and, 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 you know, practically, like, maybe to extract something that is like operating wisdom, I tend mm-hmm. to think, and this is the way that we think about it, uh, but sometimes trading off 
on economic terms is actually the better long-term economic decision. Like yes. you don't want to over optimize on price when it's so mm-hmm. speculative. You want to actually right. over optimize on control if you were to over optimize on something, you know? So yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very good point because, you know, you know, the moment you sign the deal, now your control changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that's so difficult for someone to sell a business is that often it can feel like in exchange for this money, I'm going to shoot my business in the head. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I'm giving it to somebody who doesn't understand it and who's going to fire all the employees, who's going to, you know, ruin it. And so, but I got paid, you know, it's this thing I invested 30 years of my life into. And now, um, you know, uh, to your, to your point about the trade-offs between maximizing the money and the, uh, and control. Now, I, I think in the event of exiting a business, the only thing that matters is the money, because no matter what someone tells you about the control, you're not going to have any control. Yeah, that's true. In that case, mm-hmm. for sure, you just want to maximize mm-hmm. price. And hopefully everybody mm-hmm. gets paid something, you know what I yes, mean? Yes, exactly. Sure. Hopefully everybody gets paid. Um, do you, have you been faced with people coming to buy your business? Yes, uh, pretty material mm-hmm. offers. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, we signed NDAs and blah, blah. So let me try to talk around the right. subject. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so the answer is yes. And um, obviously we didn't sell the company. Uh, mm-hmm. and obviously it was like really flattering. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, it's just wasn't the right time. <laughs> well, there's, there's, um, a lot of reasons to own and run a business. Um, now uh, you've been a CEO since you were 24. Could you see, see yourself ever working for anybody else? Yeah, I, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, and people mm-hmm. are surprised by that answer, you know, because, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I it's like I work for the customers, you know. Mm-hmm. I work mm-hmm. right. In some ways, I work for the board. Now the board is like management controlled, but like still, mm-hmm. I mean, and then the board itself works for the shareholders, right? And the shareholders, if they have jobs, they work for some. So it's like I don't know. If there's the economy is fundamentally trading off cooperation versus competition. Like I. I it's probably less control that I experience in my job than the average person, but yeah, I could definitely work for somebody else. I have no problem doing that, mm-hmm. especially if mm-hmm. they're better than me, which is probably going to be true in many cases. So, <laughs> well, you wouldn't, you would never want to work for somebody who wasn't <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's for yeah. sure. Now, um, do you think it's better to be a young CEO? I mean, you, you started like when you were 25, 24 years old, or is it? You think it's better to have? Uh, you didn't have. You didn't. weren't able to consciously make this choice. But in retrospect, is it if you like? Let's say you're going to go work for somebody else. Do you want that person to be a young CEO like you were, or do you want them to be more of a graybeard? Ah, that is an interesting way to frame this question. If if it were me, mm-hmm. and I were working for somebody else. Mm-hmm. I think there are things that you learn that are hard to describe mm-hmm. about working with people that you get after like a decade of working with people. And so, mm-hmm. it, you know, if, if there's a CEO that's like 22, but this person mm-hmm. has, you know, um, I don't know, worked since they were 12 illegally <laughs> somewhere. And uh, <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Or like, you know, something mm-hmm. tragic in the family happened and they had to yeah, shoulder yeah. a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. early on. Yeah. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I've met people that are really young that like, um, like I trained jujitsu with this guy's name's Josh. Mm-hmm. The dude is like mm-hmm. 23 and the guy comes off so mature and so like disciplined. He's so consistent about his training I would work yeah. for Josh, right? Uh, yeah. He's just really thoughtful and really empathetic. And like, I know myself at 24, I wasn't like that. You know, it yeah. took me a couple of years to develop that skill. So um, I think in some cases, like, 
yeah, I think if somebody has the experience from life or through working mm-hmm. and they have a high aptitude for solving problems and working with people, I don't think mm-hmm. um, age would matter necessarily in my personal experience in working for somebody, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, yeah, I would have to be sure that they, you know, knew how to handle themselves and they knew how to think through problems because ultimately, like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, their decision is final. So you want to make sure that they make better decisions than not like on average, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to be right in every decision. Um, now it's an interesting way that you answered that question. Um, I agree that it's growing old doesn't make us wise. I wish it did. Growing old just, <laughs> it, it just, just makes us old. You know, wisdom is a different process. Um, and I I don't think wisdom is necessarily a there's some from trial and error, but I don't think it's necessarily the result of trial and error. Um, you know, I do think for the benefit for me of aging is, is that it does whittle things away. And so there there's stuff that was a concern to me when I was, you know, 34 that's not a concern anymore. Um, totally. And so yeah, you know, it's like um, you know, they they've done research on on people who live long lives and they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm happy. And it's like, you're, you're 94 years old. You can barely get out of a chair. How could you possibly be happy? And it's like, well, you know, the, I have, um, <laughs> all of, my <laughs> life has been simpl- simplified dramatically, you know, and that, um, there's so many fewer distractions. There's a lot less shit to worry about. I mean, it's like having a family, raising kids, you know, working a job, it's it's really distracting, um, and uh, you know what's um, you know I'm going to the beach this weekend. Happiness is like staring at the ocean, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but you know um, I can't do nothing. Even if we go back to our discussion about the robot society where they they're, they're doing all the work and we just get to hang out, I think you get bored as shit. You know, I sort agree. of like yeah, like I I have no. Um, I I can't imagine an afterlife where I wouldn't be bored to tears, you know, uh, where it's just like, there's nothing to do, you know? <laughs> yes. I, I know. I mean, like uh, human, mm-hmm. like we're evolved to like solve mm-hmm. problems, you know, yeah. that's like yeah. what we're good at. And like, the cool yeah. thing is, is like, there are philosophical and religious structures in the world mm-hmm. that allow us mm-hmm. to create meaning yeah. for our desire to solve problems. So like, that's all cool, right? You're like, Oh, I'm doing this. Right. I'm creating this yeah. thing for the world. It's helping people mm-hmm. and it feels good. Mm-hmm. Like I like doing that yeah. too. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. So tell me about jujitsu. How much has being pursuing an athletic discipline informs your work? Do you feel like the fact that you, you pursue jujitsu makes you a better CEO. You know, you know what I love about jujitsu and like what I love about um, like training is that like my identity uh, as a professional doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. like at all, you know, and that, Mm -hmm. that to me is like really cool. Like when you're on the mats, um, basically you're just with your friends, you're training, you're all training to get better. And it's a, it's a domain of my life where there's nothing expected of me other than just like show up, be present, learn, have fun, treat your sparring partners with respect. And that's like, um, that's awesome. And then also when you're training and you're like working out really hard, you're not really thinking about anything else. Um, which I tend to think is actually helpful if you want to be better in your job. You need time away mm-hmm. from it to see things differently. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's super valuable. It's, it's like, you know, struggling to solve a problem. Well, maybe you should take a walk or take a nap. <laughs> yes. Like, uh, I, I, mm-hmm. Sorry. And that's what I was going to say. Have you tried that, that um, either walk taking or nap taking when you're stuck on something? You know, like I know this intellectually, I just have a hard time doing it. Like my style is like, mm-hmm. if I can't solve a problem, I just freaking stare at my screen and my desk <laughs> and like call people and overturn on it and like keep talking about it until somebody tells me to shut the f up. 
because I can't <laughs> regulate my emotions. That's generally what I do. <laughs> I get so frustrated. I can't figure this dang thing out that I just keep going, keep going. And then it's like 8 p.m. And I'm like, oh, shit, okay, I finally got it. And then the funny <laughs> thing is, I, like, I'm happy with it. Then, like, you know, I'll eat, I'll whatever, I'll get a workout in. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. the next day, I'm like, oh, shit, actually, yeah, I came up with something better. I'm like, why the hell did I <laughs> not stop? But this is, I've been doing this for as long as I've been working. So, at some point, yeah. maybe I'll learn, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, um, you know, it's... Uh, like I like to write books and there's a question about like, well, so the second book I have, I thought was done. And then I went back to, I'm like, well, maybe this isn't done. And there's (laughs) what is, what is done? You know, it's like you read it and they're like, Oh, that could be better. Um, and you know, you do, you want to be careful. It's not, you know, turn into a Jenga tower, uh, where you pull something out and you're like, Oh, all that work got wasted. You know, now I have, cause I can't think about it the way I did previously. Um, so there yes. does have to come a time when you stop, but I, I do think we're um, we're always processing. So something that uh, I'll do when I get kind of wrapped around the axle at my desk is I'll I'll meditate in one of the chairs behind me. I'll just sit there for ten minutes, and um, I don't I'm am not able to make my mind still. I mean, there's always just the, the monkey brain, the chatter is still going on. I'm trying to make it still. But a lot of times what comes out is um, another idea, you know, or something yeah. like, oh, that's what I should do next. And I wouldn't have thought of that if I hadn't taken a minute to stop and do nothing. You know, my um, my 94-year-old mother-in-law talks a lot about how she enjoys staring at the floor. And when she first told me that, I was like, that's awful. What do you mean you, you stare at the floor? And she says, no, it's perfect idleness. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being, I'm just staring at the floor. And uh, now I, I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. I hope you have time to stare at the floor today, Mimi. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I totally, I totally get it now. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I, I, I do something like, um, so I learned this, I don't know, maybe even like, uh, uh, last Thursday, actually not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, not this past mm-hmm. Thursday, but the Thursday previous. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody was talking to me and they're like, you know, like drawing is actually meditative because you're forcing your mm-hmm. mind to focus on something and you're exercising mm-hmm. a part of your brain that, you know, is like the non-logical part. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's uh, physical. Yeah, and it's physical. And so mm-hmm. I've been doing that like with my cup of coffee in mm-hmm. the morning and I, mm-hmm. and I actually just like it because I remember just like... Mm-hmm. I remember being a kid in school and just like not paying attention and just doodling on my thing. And I'm like, Oh, actually Mm -hmm. I love doing this. So that's been a helpful Mm -hmm. meditative practice. And it's probably been the, Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever lasted past like a day with any meditation practice. So this is one that's like, Mm -hmm. like a week Mm -hmm. plus. So I'm happy with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a victory. I like that. So, um, let me, uh, kind of wrap up a little bit here. Um, so I want to imagine that that want you to imagine you're somebody comes to you 24, 25 years old, and they say, Tasia, uh, I want to start a staffing business. Um, right. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I would say it depends on on what they're like, I would probably need to learn more about them. You know, mm-hmm. like what, what, what would their incoming like quality set and experience be? Uh, if, but let's assume for the purposes of this question mm-hmm. that they know about like staffing industry dynamics and they have a good understanding about the market and all this stuff, I would say, um, which is a big assumption, but I would say like, you know, be prepared to work really hard, uh, be prepared to have a learning oriented posture. Uh, since you're dealing with people, it's not Mm -hmm. as like a lot of the models that people used to think about software companies, you have to be careful in your application, um, to this type of business. Um, like there's so much more. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you want me to focus the answer? 
is probably no, that's my, good. My I mean, question. let me ask a couple of follow-ups. Um, yeah. So you see, you said you have to be prepared to work a lot of uh, really hard. Do you know how many hours a week you work? It used to be a lot more. Today, I would. I mean, let's see. Most days I work, you know, eight to five, and I usually work through lunch. I work mm-hmm. Saturdays, but on Saturdays and Sundays, most of those days are spent like reading and learning. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'll go through cycles of what I need to read and learn. Like I went through a big cycle of like, uh, like understanding the undulating patterns of my emotions. Like that was a big mm-hmm. thing for like a couple of months and how it affects my decision making mm-hmm. and how it affects my posture and leadership. Now I'm mm-hmm. focused on learning about um, math and like uh, mm-hmm. uh, applied math and how algorithms are designed. And um, mm-hmm. I feel like if you're like running a business, you're, you have to be fairly knowledgeable about a broad range of subjects. You know, in the early years, I have to learn accounting and like how to mm-hmm. read a, you know, balance sheet and how to read statement of cash flows, like, you know, just like financial statements. And so you, some of this stuff you can, you can pick up if you have the right network and it's like, Hey, what do you think about this? Uh, but some of these things you actually have to dedicate time into learning, um, uh, on the fly, which to me is actually like a really engaging part of the job. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the normal work is probably like a normal job, I would say. But the thing is, like, when something goes wrong, it's a default posture that you have to be the last line of defense. And, like, for a long time, I mean, really for the first couple of years, like, I would never take a vacation during the holidays to enable other people to take vacations, knowing that I would have to be the last line of defense if something went wrong, right? Nowadays, I can take mm-hmm. a vacation kind of like when I want to, um, mm-hmm. but... um that's how it was in the early days. But I think most of the work is like carving out time, mostly extra work, mm-hmm. like carving out time to learn shit that might be relevant a couple of years mm-hmm. from today, you know, or that could make mm-hmm. you a better CEO or a leader, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So it's like a lot of the, um, a lot of the stuff that you're doing that you can kind of consider part of the job you might, you might do anyway, even if you were doing something that wasn't um, as demanding intellectually as what you are doing. So you might want to read about yeah. math, even if you weren't weren't running a staffing business. That's probably true. That's probably true. Uh, although, like, it's hard to Im- like, yeah, it's hard to imagine what I would be doing mm-hmm. if I wasn't mm-hmm. running a company. Let's not even say this company, yeah. but a company. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. I think I would probably <laughs> learn about random shit, even if I wasn't. <laughs> <this business. laughs> right. I think you're probably you, right. Are, yeah. Are you able to separate the company from yourself? No, I don't believe in that. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just my model of the world. I, I believe in mm-hmm. like work-life harmony. And mm-hmm. that, that, that was like, a, that's not my invention. I think Jeff Bezos like sure. coined that, but it's an effective description mm-hmm. for the way that I look at the mm-hmm. world. I think, mm-hmm. you know, what you create in the world is such a big part of your personal identity. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, even like your family is a part of that in some ways, right? Like, yeah. and so I think these things are all integrated and, um, because certainly how you show up at home is like how you show up at work and the, mm-hmm. in other relationships mm-hmm. and so on. Um, so I just happen to pick a job that I think is like aligned with like who I am, you know, mm-hmm. um, and like what I like to do. And my hope is that everybody can do that, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's sort of part of what guns about Yeah, is that people get to align it with what they want. Like you said, sort of bringing joy to both sides of that equation. Um, yeah. And I, so totally. one thing I, I, I'll, I struggle with in Fortune's Path is, are we selling, you know, Tom Noser or are we selling Fortune's Path? And in, in my mind, they're they're pretty, you know, kind of blended. Um, but that makes it hard to buy, you know. So it's like this is the thing I struggle with all the time is trying to be of. I mean, I know it's like once we land a deal, we're going to be a service. But how do you trust someone? 
how do you get someone to trust that you can be of service to them? Because sometimes you know better than what they know about what they need. You know, I'm sure you guys have seen this in your own organization where it's like you'll have a developer place somewhere and the guy's like, I can't believe this is where we're spending our time. This is really not what this product needs. And I just opened up a much larger subject, but we'll, we'll see. Um, I mean, how do you guys get that feedback back to your clients about you're not telling the guys to spend their their time in the right places? Okay, I, I will. I will mm-hmm. address the comments in sequence. So there's an interesting okay. comment about separating yourself from the business. I mean, the way mm-hmm. that I think about it is like. My job description is like I'm a I'm a painter and like my canvas mm-hmm. is like the business and so like I the craft like my job is like the craft of building a great company and so mm-hmm. like that's kind of like that's kind of how I view it and so for me you know my identity my personal sense of my effectiveness as a leader is a function of like how well the company is doing for better or for worse. Um, so that's that's maybe um, a response to one of the nested questions. And then mm-hmm. the second question around how do we get feedback from the companies around the performance of the developers? Because you're right. I mean, like, basically how well the developers perform, that's mm-hmm. the value proposition, right? It's like all the vetting that we do, all the identification, all the work that we do, all the mentorship should ultimately result in better, you know, not only technical outcomes, but ultimately better business outcomes for the companies. And so much of that, it's like 50-50, right? It's like part of that's on the company, part of that's on the developer themselves or the developers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way, the way we do that is like we try to like, Step one is like putting what we believe are like two capable people or some group of capable people in the room together. Like the companies are capable. We try to vet them against a number of factors. Um, and then we try to vet the developers against a number of factors. Like, okay, like our theory is step one, you got to put two capable people in the room. Then step two is like, you kind of have to guide that process of working together. Um, if there's confusion in how they're going to work together. And the way you can do that is like, you know, you make sure that there's a statement of work, you know, which is just an artifact to describe like, Hey, what the F are we doing together? Right. You call it different things, call it scoping, like whatever. Um, and so we try to do that before, like sort of you break ground on the project. Uh, and every, every variant of like, a service business has something that they call this. I mean, like, even when you get a haircut, they're like, so what are you looking for? Show me some pictures, you know? So it's like the same approach, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you need an idea of what ideal state looks like and what you want to accomplish. Boom. So that's like kind of um, the start of step two. Then like sort of how step two works is like every 30 days, there's feedback. You know, at some point we, we want to explore like cycling it faster. Like, I mean, in one of our previous conversations in real life, like why not have that every day? You know, why not have mm-hmm. that every week? Um, certainly not every six months or every year, like traditional performance evaluations. Um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that the, the bounds there are like, you want the cycles to be like spaced enough to actually have things to discuss, but yeah not so long that it's like the thing that you want to discuss is now irrelevant or like not the most important thing anymore. And so we're still trying to find that balance, but let's say it happens every 30 days on the same cycle mm-hmm. as basically the statement of work generation. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately this, the funny thing about human beings, is like we respond to like, like we respond best when things are, feeling like they're continually getting better. It's like, if you get a really high starting salary, like let's say you're at the top end of your role for a starting salary in one year, you're going to feel underappreciated if you don't get a raise because the psychology (laughs) of human being, right? Like you could be at the, you you, you could like literally be the highest paid person for this job in the world. Yeah. But if you don't get a raise based on what you did, you'll be like, 
Mm-hmm. F this company. This company sucks. <laughs> and so yeah, it's right. weird. It's straight up it weird. weird. Right? Yeah. Like, or mm-hmm. like, or like you're the most profitable company on earth, right? And then, mm-hmm. but you don't have an increase in profits. Your valuation will go down. Why? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, Tasia just dropped out. So I'm not quite sure um, how I'll end it other than to say that there's tornado warnings in Nashville. And uh, so it may be that he lost his internet. Um, and But we're very grateful to have him as a guest and can't wait to have him back. Thanks for listening. Fortune's Path podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We work with technology companies to build products that power monopoly profits. You can catch old episodes of the Fortune's Path podcast and learn more about us at fortunespath.com. Special thanks to Tasia for being our guest. Using an editing of the Fortune's Path podcast are my son, Ted Noser. I'm Tom Noser. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's Path. <laughs>